1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, Michelle Shepard here. I'm jumping back into the feed to tell you about a brand new weekly podcast called Crime Story. It's hosted by a good friend of mine, Kathleen Goldhar. And each week, she goes deep inside a true crime story with a journalist who knows it best. From the reporter who exposed Bill Cosby to the writer who solved one of Australia's most chilling cold cases... Crime Story guests include Gilbert King from Bone Valley, Eric Benson from Project Unibomb, Carol Fisher from The Girlfriends, and many more. And she got me on an episode of Crime Story, where we discuss one of my documentaries called The Perfect Story. It was supposed to be a story about Ismail Abdul, a Somali teenager I met and wrote about years ago, who had his hand and foot cut off for refusing to join the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. But the documentary unexpectedly turned into one about journalism and the stories we tell and who gets to tell them, making it the most difficult and personal film I've done. Have a listen. The following
0: episode contains difficult subject matter. Please take care while listening. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best.
2: I always thought, oh no, I'm a national security reporter who does difficult Guantanamo based stories and other stories that have nuance, and I don't tell the very simple narratives. But I was drawn to this story because it was a simple narrative. You know, it's, it was a classic young kid hero.
0: There are certain things that I miss about getting a newspaper delivered to my door every morning. One of those things is the impact of the front page picture. And there are a few I will always remember, including the first time I saw Michelle Shepard shot of a 17-year-old Ishmael Abdul. Sitting on a simple straight back chair, the young man with soulful eyes looks straight into the lens. His eyes are so piercing that at first you don't notice the rest of him. But eventually, you take it in. His right hand and his left leg have been cut off. Cut off by the terrorist group Al-Shabaab.
2: I I could barely focus the camera because my eyes were tearing up. And it was just kind of the the barbarity of this war that I'd covered for so long was really bearing down in that moment.
0: Michelle took that first picture of Ishmael in 2010. And over the course of a decade, the story she told about him, how he lost his hand and foot changed, causing Michelle to ask, what stories are told, why do we tell them, and who gets to do the telling? All of it went into a feature documentary called The Perfect Story. Michelle, welcome to Crime Story. Thanks, Kathleen. Okay, first major disclaimer... (laughs) We are friends. We are, yes. yeah. You were one of my best <laughs> friends. We met in journalism school, yeah. and we do tend to spend a lot of time together. So this is not. This is going to be an un, very unbiased or biased yes. interview. Um, and uh, also, we've worked together on a number of podcasts. So let's just put that out there that we yes. know each other really. You got really me really into well. podcasting. Yes, that's right. Okay, but let's talk about Ishmael then. Tell me, yeah. how did you meet
2: him? So it was in uh, January 2010, and at the time I was working for the Toronto Star. I was a foreign correspondent, and I covered Somalia quite a bit. Actually, it was it was it was a great time to be a foreign correspondent. We had money that they don't quite have anymore these days, and uh, Somalia was one of the areas I covered, in part because my beat as national security reporter was looking at things that happened after 9-11. But Somalia was also a really important uh, story for Canadians. Because outside of Africa, uh, Toronto, or Canada, but Toronto in particular, has the largest diaspora. So I was always completely connected when I went there. Like I've lost track, but over the years, I think maybe two or three prime ministers in Somalia were Canadian, the head of the police, the head of the intelligence. So, you know, Everybody who came here early in the nineties, there was a very powerful diaspora. A lot of them went back to try and help rebuild the country. And so being a Canadian, working for the Toronto Star really helped me help me get in and and get connections. And what was going on in Somalia? Like, why was it such a focus for you? It was, uh, I mean, it has been sort of years of war there. Um, but in particular, around that time, there was a group that was connected to Al-Qaeda. And since nine I'd been co- covering all the Al-Qaeda groups and their splinters. So al-Shabaab had risen to power um, during a period of uh, civil war there. And then by that time, when I met Ismail, they had joined with forces with, uh, with Al-Qaeda.
0: And... You met Ishmael. So tell me about how that happened. Who was he? How did you meet him?
2: Yeah, it was through a contact, actually a Canadian contact, who worked for the justice minister there. And I was on a trip. It was a time when It was very difficult to move around Somalia. So I was essentially embedded. I was with the African Union forces. We had to drive around in these massive armored vehicles called caspires. We were in, you know, flak jacket, helmet. um, And you, you had to have this security to get around. But a contact of mine who worked for the justice minister said, listen, I have someone I really need you to meet. Can you get over here? So I convinced my escorts that I needed to go do this interview. Um, I remember they were none too pleased because it was getting close to curfew. We couldn't be on the streets late. So they're like, "Okay, but you don't have long. So we race over there to this area. And I walk in and there's actually four young men. um, And they're sitting there. And each one is missing a hand and a foot. And they've sought refuge in this government compound. Almost as soon as I got there, the guards are like, "Okay, we got to go. We got to go. It was a terrible situation to try and do an interview. So I went over and I started talking with them through a translator. They all spoke Somali. And it was Ismail who came forward. He was the youngest. He was so eager to tell his story. And he just he couldn't talk fast enough telling me everything that happened. And then right at the end, as they're screaming, you got to go, you got to go. I'm like okay I need to take a picture and he did the picture that you spoke about he just walked over he grabbed a chair very naturally like took off his prosthetic hand and foot and folded his legs in such a way and just stared at the camera and I remember I was like I could barely focus the camera because my eyes were tearing up and it was just kind of the the barbarity of this war that had covered for so long was really bearing down in that moment and it was it was and it was really difficult. And there was this terrible power imbalance. Here I am in, you know, my flak jacket and helmet with these guards. And here's this seventeen year old in his sarong missing a hand and a leg. And so that's when I met him. I, I raced out of there. My final um image of him is he, he looked at me and he pointed to a Canadian pin on my bag. And so I like I was like, Well, you want this pin? Sure, gave it to him and he dropped it. And my final image was him like trying to find the pin. And anyway, went back in, got back before curfew, went back to Nairobi, wrote the story. And I think by that point, I was starting to get a little, you know, a little cynical about foreign reporting. You write these harrowing stories and kind of nothing happens. You know, that you, you come back and you get that kind of, I think there's a term for it, it's called moral injury. When you do these kind of stories that, that you come back and you, and you start to think, I, I'm not making a difference. It's not It's not
1: changing anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we all, go through that I always say like the one time that I felt like I was doing a job that mattered although of course we all feel like we do it was actually on 9-11 it was like the first time that I had that feeling of like oh this is as important as every other aspect of our society was that was that day yeah absolutely yeah and I know you covered it much more intensely than I did can we just back up for a
2: second though what did you learn about how he lost his hand and his foot so the story that he told me and my contact had told me before, um, gave me a little bit of a heads up, was that he he lived in a Shabab neighborhood. And in at that time, the city was completely divided up. And so they came recruiting. They asked him to join. And he told me that he said no. He was in school. He wanted to stay in school. And he didn't want to join the group and that was a really brave thing to do because I think we always have this misconception that you know the the group is wildly popular and everyone believes in the ideology and sure that's true to some degree but a lot of their recruits are just impoverished kids they live in the neighborhood it's like the mob you know <laughs> you need to join for protection you get a cell phone probably get more money working with them than you would other groups so it was pretty unusual and brave that he did this uh, they let him go he told me and then but then they came back from the next day. And they kidnapped him. Um, They said, you don't defy al-Shabaab. They took three other boys and they put them in uh, prison for, I think it was about 28 days. Harrowing conditions. At the end of that, they pulled him out to his stadium. And one by one, with people looking on, they amputated his, took off his hand and then his foot. Um, Which is just, (laughs) you know, I've said that story so many times. I've covered his story. But when when you think about it and you look at the pictures from that day... Um, which we had, the Associated Press had a photo of the four boys standing there before and after. Um, it's it's pretty hard, pretty hard to believe. And in your
0: movie, he describes what it felt like. And it was interesting to me. I mean, it was hard to listen to. And of course you have to remind yourself he was 17, but he talks about like electric shocks. Yeah.
2: And it was really interesting when we did that because when we did the the filming for when he talks about that story, it was kind of the most animated and emotional that he's ever been in all the years he told that story and you know I he told it to me originally but then as we'll probably get into we kept in touch and his story grew and he told it over and over again but yeah in that in that interview he says you know it was just like when you hit your elbow and you know when you get that that weird sort of jolt that's what it felt like um and and then I I believe he kind of passed out when when the foot was was taken but then the, the crazy thing is that they they kept him after that. So first of all, I th- always think it's amazing that these boys didn't die. But, you know, Shabab actually has doctors. <laughs> they have medicine. Um, so they kept, they kept them alive. They took him back to a safe house. And then what he told me was about three months later, he managed to escape. He convinced a cab driver to drop them off. He escaped. And then after he escaped, he made his way to the government where he found, you know, he, he found refuge there. And then that's when I met him.
0: And then talk about reaction. I mean, this story, yeah. you react your Canadian readership reacted in a way that you didn't expect.
2: I didn't expect because as I was saying, I had gotten a little cynical. And, you know, I remember covering like the Somali famine once and it was like thousands of children were dying. It was harrowing. I came back and there was a story about puppies who had been <laughs> rescued from Puerto Rico the same day. <laughs> And the star phones lit up. I mean, I think it was hundreds of people called, and I think I got one call. about. And I love dogs. I mean, I read that story, but I got, you know, one call. So I was getting sort of— You adopted a dog. I adopted a dog from Puerto Rico. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But it was like, yeah, it was hard not to get cynical, uh, but it had a reaction. And it started with the the Somali diaspora here. You know, they just—they called me right away. They're like, what can we do? Um, and then other readers chimed in, you know, how can we help? And then it was one person in particular who was a friend of mine, this incredible man who's in in the film. He ended up producing the film with me. Um, his name's Sahal Abdul, same last name, but no relation. And he's a, a Canadian Somali journalist. He had survived a terrible attack years ago, got PTSD, sort of left journalism. And he called me and he said, you know, I can't, save Somalia, but I think I can save Ismail. And he set out to do that. And he did. Like he unofficially got him out of Mogadishu, um, smuggled him into Nairobi, unofficially adopted him. Uh, and then story goes from there. Tell me where the
0: story goes from there.
2: Right. So so Sahal said he was going to um, save him. So he, he was prepared to have him live with him in Nairobi for as long as it takes. You know, I went back nine months later when he rescued him, did that story, um, was there with him in Nairobi. And then I went back to Toronto thinking, OK, well, he'll be there for a while. And it was just 3 months later I get this call and Saul's so like are you, are you sitting down? I was like uh, yes. He's like we got you know refuge for Ismail. I've got, I've, I've got the UN to agree. Uh, UNHCR to agree and I was like that's incredible. Where is he going? It's like Norway. Cuz we had hoped he maybe would come to Canada. Uh, I'm like okay, okay, Norway. And he's like I'm like, where, Oslo? He's like, no, Harstad, Norway. So I'm like pulling up a map. I'm like, that's 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. And he's like, I know. Um, So three months after that call, I went with uh, Ismail and Sahal, like 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle to this beautiful little town called Harstad. Um, And at that time, it was January. So it was a year after I'd met him, January 2011 is when he went there. And it was the time when there's no light, right? So you can just imagine this My culture God. shock. Yeah, you know this this kid who's never seen snow before, never been outside of Mogadishu. I mean, Nairobi was a culture shock for him. Um, to arrive there and just <laughs> what what happened? But you know, he thrived. Like it was an amazing community there. Um, at that time, they had in, like incredible support system for refugees. They embraced him. He learned Norwegian really quickly, started to join a soccer league. He was in school, finishing his high school. He did really well. Um, and I just I kept going back and visiting him, you know, sometimes for stories. I had a film that was once in an Oslo Film Festival. He came down and met me, and then we went back. So we we developed this relationship over about 10 years where I would update people on his story, and his story grew well beyond the Toronto Star. I mean, New York Times covered it, Guardian. He was a celebrity kind of in Norway. Um, so it, he just kept telling his story over and over again.
0: And your relationship with him, you stayed the journalist, but you sort of moved past that, right? Yeah, it's hard. Like, yeah. you
2: know, you have this sometimes. And I used to think you never did that like there was always a very um solid line and cuz we we learned that in journalism school right yeah. i mean <laughs> when we were in journalism school way back when yeah. i mean you just you were taught that it was objectivity 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 and i i think it was probably before this case but this case definitely brought it home that i'm like no nah, that doesn't exist i mean everybody comes to stories with the lenses that you come and you have to acknowledge them but also it's it's unnatural Especially when you're following someone for yeah. so long, and then of course, later, when I end up doing the documentary to to not have some sort of friendship. So I don't really know the word to describe it. what it was it a friendship? It was like I was like a big sister to him. i'm I'm not sure what it was, but we we enjoyed each other's company. You know, we would see each other when we could. and and yet, and yet, I was always still writing stories. You know, I wrote a book, and he was in the book. I dedicated the book to him. and there, so there was always still that relationship that that power imbalance really even though we had a friendship
0: and then i remember actually quite clearly when things started to kind of shift with him yeah and you started to talk about you just weren't sure what was going on that he was
2: it was when have, i did the documentary yeah yeah it was up until that point and he had wanted to do a documentary he'd been pushing and
0: so let's just back up to make people. Yeah. So you you decided with him that you were going to do a
2: documentary about his life. Right. So he had really wanted to do one. He knew that I was doing documentaries. At that point I was starting to transition away from the Toronto Star and go independent and get more into filmmaking. Um so I was like, "Sure, this is great." Um we had TVO come on board first and NFB, and they really liked the idea a little bit of our relationship which I did not want to do quite frankly because I did not want to be a part of the do- I was like okay I can maybe narrate this but I really don't want to be in it I'll so I I kind of remember having these conversations being like yeah 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 it'll be our relationship and then you know as you start filming I'm like nah I'm not going to be in it that much <laughs> um but yeah I I mean I remember us talking about it cuz I would ask your advice you know as as my friend and as a another journalist i'm like i he's i feel like every time the camera goes on he's performing cuz he's so like you've met him right mm-hmm. he's so genuine and he's so sweet and he's he seems so real and he's funny and he's and a lot of that was coming out on camera but it was almost like we had a very on off so like, okay, the camera's on, now we're filming. And and you you try not to do that in documentaries, right? You try and be as natural as possible. Yeah. And always. So I I knew something was up. Um, we had him in Toronto. We did some filming there. We did some filming in Norway. And then we were building towards him going back to Mogadishu for the first time. And that was always going to be part of the doc, that we would film that that trip back. He hadn't been since he fled. First time he'd seen his family in 10 years. And so we knew it was going to be really emotional. Um, It's also very logistically difficult to travel there. So it was really when we got there, after one or two days of filming, I'm like, something is up. And Sahal, who was also there, um, you know, there's a point in the film where he's actually saying, he's not telling us something. Like, I don't know what's happening here. And he he was really kind of getting angry almost. And you can see it in the film. And I tell you, it was really uncomfortable to put it in because it's awful. It doesn't, I don't think, I think it makes me look terrible um, because you see this tension. It's like I'm kind of forcing him to answer questions and he doesn't want to. Um, Everything about
0: him changed.
2: Yeah. You started to see his body language change. Yeah, It was obvious something was
0: happening inside of him. When did you start to kind of think that you knew what it was or did he give you an indication that, because there was, in yeah. the end, we find out, and we'll get to that, that there was a real reason why yeah. he was being, who was anxious
2: about it. How did that sort of come to be? Tell us that that story. Yeah, I mean, at first I was like, okay, this is just traumatic, and this is trauma. And I had spoken to a friend of mine before I left about who is a wonderful um, forensic psychiatrist who works with people with PTSD, works with journalists that, and and I just asking, you know. What should I be careful? I don't want to trigger anything for him. Like I was letting him very much drive what was happening. Yeah. But um, he wanted to do, there was never anything that he didn't want to do. Um, but so at first I was just like, it's just the trauma of this. Um, but it, it just, I started to feel guilty in a weird way too. I was like, I I think in a way if I could have stopped the film then I hmm. might have, you know, like I it was... It was feeling really uncomfortable and it never felt uncomfortable with him. Like I was making him do something that was hurting him.
0: I remember you were uncomfortable even before you went to Mogadishu because you were uncomfortable yeah. with him being there. You were uncomfortable with how long he wanted mm-hmm. to stay. Like there, it was already starting. Like it was right. you were unsure as to like
2: how he would do there and how yeah. long he wanted to be there. Well, because we worried he was still a hu- at huge risk because here he was someone who had defied the Shabaab. He's coming back. He's in their face. There's they still have a presence in Mogadishu, nothing like when he was there before, but there's still attacks. He could have easily been targeted. But it was also a terrible, you know, I talked about the power imbalance. Terrible when you were there because because of the way it is there security-wise and because we were a film crew, we had we stayed at a fortified hotel. Where you know the UN stays, stays and most foreigners, um, it's very rare for foreigners at, at that time anyway to go out in the city. So we went out with you know, armed gunmen. Like you, you have to have security there. But it was a it was a gross power imbalance because everything we were doing was because we could afford it, and Ismail couldn't afford that, right? But he was by the, he was with us, and just by nature of that, you're not getting something that's natural because we are changing the situation. So all that felt really gross. In a way that it's a reality, unfortunately, with a lot of foreign correspondence and the work you do, but it really felt gross that trip. I I was hugely uncomfortable. And you could tell he was uncomfortable. And yeah, we left there that week and he decided he wanted to stay way longer and we were paying for him to fly there and back. Um and he wanted us to change the ticket. And I was like, "You're you're at risk here. Don't like, please like listen to your mom. Listen to Sahal. What do I know? But listen to these people who like understand the situation really well. Your mom doesn't want you to stay. Sahal doesn't want you to stay. All the security advisors don't. Um. So we left not really knowing. He was he was staying on. Obviously, we left not knowing what would happen. And then got back to Toronto, and I would get weird texts. From him, we were supposed to kind of Skype all the time. Communication started to dwindle, and then he kept saying, "Can you extend my trip? Can you extend my trip?" So I can't remember exactly now how much it was, but I think he was supposed to go for two weeks and ended up being three months. And his mom eventually sends him home. His mom was like, "Go home." Yeah, (laughs) yeah. At some point, she's like, "That was the text we got saying my mom wants me to go now, so I have to." Can Can you go? And then the plan was we would meet him uh, in Amsterdam uh, on his connection and then film him going back to Norway. And he sent me a text saying, the, f- the film is not happening. You can meet me in Amsterdam, but don't bring cameras. So that's what I did.
0: And then you find out eventually that he's got something to tell you about his story.
2: Yeah, it was in Amsterdam. And he, he said, we're like, what is happening? We know something's happening. And he, not on camera, because I went with uh, producer Bryn Hughes and we we didn't, you know, honored his wishes, didn't bring the camera. And he just said, I've been living a lie for 10 years. I told you a lie. And I remember I started crying, which is like ridiculously unprofessional. But I, I was just it was starting to make sense. I was like, Oh, I am a part of something that's going to come right now and, and poor you. And he didn't give us many details, but he basically said, what I told you 10 years ago, wasn't exactly the truth. And I instantly knew, Oh, you told me that story. And then you couldn't, you couldn't dial it back. It was like a chain of events that things that happen. Um, so he went back to Norway. We went back to Toronto. We kind of put the film on hold for a while. And um, I I was so lucky that it was actually a really, really amazing team. Like documentary filmmaking is not always the nicest business. And at the NFB and TVO, we had this, happened to be all women, this team of like incredibly patient, wonderful producers are like, let's just do what's best for him. Let's wait. And eventually he decided that he would tell the story um, and he would tell it on camera and we'd finish the film. And that's how the film would change. So the film was completely different from what we set out to do. All of a sudden, I was a main character, which I hope to never do again in a film, but it felt disingenuous not to be a part of it. And then he came to Toronto for a really difficult week of filming. I mean, he was he was kind of angry in ways that I understand. Um, and we did his interview over two days. Like, it was hours of him going through his story, telling it, taking breaks, Um. And he basically, I mean, in the end, I really don't feel the lie was very significant, but it clearly had eaten him up for all those years. And what the real story was, was that he did live in a Shabab neighborhood, but he had been uh, robbing people at a market. He had a a gun. He had been with his friends and Bakara Market's very famous market in Mogadishu. And he had been there one day and a Shabab member came up, someone that knew his brother, and said, can I see your gun? And he's like, sure. And he handed him the gun, and he pointed at him and said, okay, you're a thief, and under Sharia law, we punish thieves, so now you're under arrest. So they took him into custody. All that part was true. Obviously, they still did the same barbaric act to him. And then the other part of the story that uh, changed was that when he was, uh, he told me he had uh, escaped, which always was a little bit, like the story was always... A little bit thin on details. I do remember that part being like, but how did you escape? And what were what happened? Um, anyway, that part of the story wasn't true. What ended up happening was they held him for three months and then they returned him home with $50 and to his family. And he, I mean, this is the part that amazes me. At 17 years old, he knows that he's a double amputee. He is, you know, has almost no prospects there. So he makes his way to the government. He convinces them because everybody, like the justice minister, you know, my contact who is the justice minister's spokesperson, they they didn't think that that part of the story wouldn't be true. So he seeks refuge there. He convinces them that this is the story. And then I just happen to be in Mogadishu and the one that he tells it to.
0: I mean, even as a 17-year-old to realize that he has to tell you a story That is sort of the perfect victim story versus the truth
2: is quite genius of a young man who... It's astute, right? And this is where we all come into the story, and this is what we tried to do in the film, that it's like, it's not... He understood that we crave those kind of simple stories. And I was embarrassed because I always thought, oh no, I'm a national security reporter who does difficult Guantanamo Bay stories and other stories that have nuance, and I don't tell the very simple narratives but I was drawn to this story because it was a simple narrative. You know, it's, it was a classic young kid hero. But I, you know, I think generally as a society, we we do we have certain expectations of how people are supposed to behave. And you know, in Canada here, we've had an influx of Syrian refugees, and we all want the story of the Syrian restaurant owner. Who is making good of it and now becoming this success. Not the Syrian refugee who's like, it's really difficult here. I have mental health issues and I can't afford this and et cetera. Like, we want a certain story. And and he he knew that. He knew that that he wouldn't get the same empathy if he told what really happened. Um And he's probably right. Like, I know I've been asked, would you still write the story? Absolutely. I mean, it's still what happened to him was barbaric. He was still a way into a larger story about Shabab and what was happening at the time. But would it have generated the same outpouring? I'm not sure it would have. You know, I I don't know if his fate would have been changed the same way. You say you would have told it, but was
0: it your place to tell it? Should it have been somebody else telling that story?
1: Well, that's the
2: other question that all of this raised. Like In a way, the story made me rethink what we do as foreign correspondents when we parachute in and out anyway. Because um, I remember yeah.
0: us really talking about how impossible it would be to fact-check so much yeah. of what happens there. Not, not even just him, but everything. And so it does yeah. make you wonder, like who should be the one telling those stories when yeah. it's so hard to know what's really going on or what the truth is?
2: I, it's such, I mean, it's such a larger question. I think generally in a larger journalism question, I think mm. generally, you know, in terms of foreign storytelling, what we try and do now is, you know, support local journalists um, and and empower that. And that's, and I think since 2010, that has been so much has changed journalism wise, that that has become a reality. And that's wonderful because I'm going to tell a different story than a Somali journalist is one hundred percent. We're going to have different access. Um, but I don't think it means that you can't have I hope it doesn't mean that you can't have foreign correspondents going into countries because the lens that I mm-hmm. brought was different in an important way yeah. too. I mean, it I would bring what I liked about always being based here and going to various countries is I would work with local journalists that would often really help like tremendously help in understanding the context. But I also knew, what people were looking at here. You know, I knew the Canadian policies and what stories would matter to people and how you could tell them in a way that it would make them care, I hoped, anyway.
0: Well, and I don't know if he would have gotten refugee status if it had been in a newspaper in another country.
2: No, but then that... the
0: power of the Somali community here.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And
0: we're saying this quickly and you're talking about it, but you. This was fraught for you for Ugh. months and months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this wasn't an easy thing for you. Even you say, you
2: know, it shifted and I accepted I was going to be part of the story. That was so hard. It was horrible because you're really, you know, first of all, you have written something that isn't true. You know, that's the cardinal sin in journalism. So I knew I had to correct the record. That's hard to do. Even though in hindsight, I don't think there was any way that I could have fact-checked it differently. Um, and also, I think I had a duty of care as you do when you're in the field to so those who've been traumatized. And it's not my role to go in and interrogate him. Like, why would I think that part of his story wasn't true? But still, you're out there saying, Hey, I, you know, reported a story. So that was hard. But yeah, just the queasy feeling of all the different things that it brings up in terms of what we do as foreign journalists, what we do as journalists. Um and, and you were then, worried
0: about the response.
2: I was worried about the response for a whole bunch of reasons. Like, one, that I worried it would smack of some sort of gross white saviorism, you know, which I always made it clear it wasn't the Toronto Star and it wasn't my report. It was the Somali diaspora that did this. But of, but of course there's that gross feeling, right? I'm still the white director and journalist telling this boy's story. Yeah. So, so that's uncomfortable. Um, but I did worry about the reaction, too, that if we didn't, Tell the story properly. And thankfully, this didn't happen. But I was worried what would happen to him. Um, you know, at a time when there's incredible xenophobia, was he going to have his citizenship, his Norwegian citizenship taken from him? Would people, you know, right wingers be like, see, all refugees lie? You know, would it give fodder to that? And also at a time when, you know, media is so under fire and cries of fake news, would it give fodder to the fact that, see, they never get it right? So yeah, it was, it was, I, I, I've never disliked a project more. You know, I was just, it felt this sort of gross, like, let's get through this. I feel like it's responsible to correct the record. That actually gives you credibility in journalism. He wants to do this. He needs to get this off his chest. But, um, yeah, I think you remember this. It's like when the film came out, I was like, okay, let's just have a quick screening and then, like, go yeah, away. Yeah, be done with it. And be done, yeah. But the response actually wasn't... It was lovely. Yeah. I know, I was so happy because... Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, we had, uh, we had it at hot dogs for a couple nights and it was, you know, sold out theater. It was beautiful crowd. People understood really thoughtful questions, difficult questions, um, stuff, I think like still working through, but like smart response, you know, a couple tiny instances of what I worried about, you know, the xenophobia and stuff, but, but very minor. And then nothing, nothing came to of harm to him, which was the most important.
0: And I know you don't like to. you're embarrassed by it, but this telling of this was so well done. It was so real and human. And it added to the story in a way that I think if it had been always told in the
2: truth, I'm not sure we would have even gotten as much out of it. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was I'm not saying this to be like modest, but it really was a film that it's like I was the least (laughs) important part. Like we had Nick Hector was our editor and he was incredible. Like it was because I was so involved in it. Um, and then Bryn and others, like it was, and Sahal, of course, like I was so involved in it. I didn't have any perspective to even kind of figure out how to do the film. So there was, it was a heavy lift from everybody on it. But in the, I think once I finally got over the queasiness, I, I hate the word important. It sounds so. Oh, it was an important Ponzi, but if, journalism feels, story to yeah. tell.
0: Like it beyond you and yeah. beyond the story, it was an important
2: journalism story to tell because there's lessons to be learned from what happened. I think you can show it in journalism schools. I like that would so. be the ideal and then just let it spark a discussion, you know, because it brings up all these questions that it took me 20 years into my career to really, you know, face.
0: Yeah. Has he seen the film?
2: Mhm. We watched it online so it was during COVID at the end. Um because otherwise I would have gone to Norway and showed it to him in person. But we watched it together online. Because, um, and again, this is a weird journalism thing. Normally you never do this. But we didn't feel comfortable with it releasing it until he'd seen it. Um you just, yeah, you don't do that. You don't show a subject of film. You certainly on condition of like releasing it. But yeah, we did that. And what did he think? He actually really liked it. He did. I mean, he... Um, we, we recorded that too. It was all getting very meta. I was like, Are we gonna include that in there? Um, we didn't in the film. But he he was surprised, because it's hard. I don't think he always realized it was gonna be more about journalism and the question of that than about him. Um, but in the end he he said he liked it and he was bracing for the reaction as well. He he already said, you know, some people are really gonna get these this and some people aren't. And I'm like, Yeah, you're probably right. And luckily the people who didn't get it was a much smaller group than the people who did. But since then, I mean, I offered to bring him here for the screenings and he didn't want to do any of that. And as far as I know, he hasn't done any interviews on it. And unfortunately, our, our relationship really kind of severed after that. He, I mean, we stayed in touch, um, but recently he, at one point's like, you know what, every time I talk to you, it just reminds me of this. And... And that's absolutely fair. So I haven't talked to him now in quite a while.
0: Sad, but also brave of him to do it and then brave of him to say, I need to move on.
2: Totally. Totally. And he, he did need to. I mean, that identified him for so many years. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, Michelle, thanks.
1: Thank you for having me, Kathleen.
0: You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel, or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager. And Arif Narani is the Director of CBC
1: Podcasts. That was an episode from Crime Story. More episodes are available right now, everywhere you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.